You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. get you thinking along the lines of what I want you to be thinking about this morning. This is a question that you're not going to hear from any Bible trivia game. Here's the question. Is the gospel message attractive? Is the gospel message attractive? Is the, is the message of the gospel, the good news, is it attractive? Now, you might be thinking, well, as a believer, it certainly is to me. Right? It offers hope. Peace, forgiveness, peace with God, the peace of God, the indwelling of the Spirit of God, the ability to understand the Word, all of the blessings of salvation, adoption, complete forgiveness and eternal inheritance, the hope of heaven, all of that is contained in the Gospel message. To those of us who are believers, it is the most wonderful news, the most glorious news we love to proclaim it, we love to read about it, we love to hear it, we love to meditate upon it. It's wonderful for us, is it not? Is it an attractive message? Now what about to unbelievers? Is the Gospel attractive to unbelievers? And if it's not attractive, should we strive to make it attractive to them? Is the Gospel offensive? And if it is offensive, is it at the same time attractive? And if it's attractive, how can it be offensive? And if it is offensive, how can it be attractive? So what would you say? Is the gospel message attractive or is it not? Depends on which side of salvation you're on, right? Now I would argue certainly that it is both. And I think it is possible that the attraction of the gospel message lies in its offensiveness. Now think about that for a second. I think it's possible that the gospel is attractive because it is offensive. And so what we do today is in order to keep people from being offended, we strip the Gospel message of all of the offensive elements of it, and then we're left without anything really to attract people, and so then we add to it all of these things to try and draw people to it. Could it possibly be that the Gospel is attractive primarily because it is offensive? Because it is both. You understand how offensive the Gospel is? It's offensive because the gospel, if the gospel is true, the message of the cross is true, then that means there's only one way to heaven. Every other path, every other road to God, so to speak, leads only to eternal perdition and eternal separation from the presence of God forever and ever and ever and ever. No matter how sincere the adherent may be, the result of any other faith other than faith placed in Christ is eternal separation from the presence of God. That is what the gospel message proclaims. Now that is offensive to the delicate sensibilities of those of us who are very inclusive or think we're inclusive. It's an offensive message. It's offensive because it pronounces us guilty. It says that we have violated the law of God. All of His righteous standards, all of His holy attributes, everything about God's person, everything about His holiness. It declares that you and I are rebels against the high throne of heaven and that we deserve eternal judgment. That's offensive to unsaved man because unsaved man likes to rationalize what he does, justify what he does, 
offer excuses for what he does rather than repent. That is offensive to us, to be pronounced guilty. Because we don't like to be called guilty. We like to declare our innocence. It's offensive because of it is, it is exclusive. It is offensive because it pronounces judgment upon us. Because it pronounces us guilty. It's offensive because the Gospel demands obedience. You know how offensive that is to somebody? To tell them, you must trust Christ as Savior. But we're not talking about an eternal fire escape here. We're talking about obeying the Son. The preaching of the Gospel must include with it the element of obedience. Those who believe in the Son are saved, and those who will not obey the Son are not saved and have no life, but the wrath of God abides on them. And we demand of men, and the Gospel demands of men, that they submit themselves and obey Christ. Not just trust in Him, but obey Him for salvation. Those are some demands. That's offensive, isn't it? It's offensive to be told that you're on the outside and that there's only one very narrow way. And we don't like to hang around with people who think that they're always right. But in this case, from Scripture, that is the truth. And it's offensive. And the Gospel is offensive because it crushes our pride. It humbles us. It strips us of all of our own self-righteousness, all of our own achievements, all of our own glory. And the Gospel reminds us that you and I must be totally, completely, 100% dependent on what somebody else has done. An unregenerate man does not like that. Unregenerate man wants to have salvation on his own terms. I want to come to Christ my way. And it will be by my works. And God will accept me on the basis of my good works. And all that I've done for Him. That's how unregenerate man thinks. He wants salvation, but he wants it on his terms, his way, and he'll give up or choose or do whatever he wants. That's how man thinks. And it's offensive to be told, you have nothing to do with your salvation. You must be and are completely dependent on another person and what somebody else has done if you are to be saved at all. Unregenerate man doesn't like that. You'll notice in Peter's message in Acts chapter 3 that he didn't avoid offending his audience. Acts chapter 3, we looked at the first few verses, verses 11 through 16 last week. Let's review again what Peter said. Look at verse 13. Peter said that God has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and you disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead. That's offensive, is it not? Peter didn't avoid that offense. Peter just stated it as it was. And talk about offending your audience. He was just lays it right out on the line and calls a spade a spade. In verses 11 through verse 16 is the offense of the cross. He, he hammers them on their sin and boxes them in and recites for them all of the things that they had done for which they deserve the judgment of God. That's the offensiveness of it. He indicts them and declares them guilty. That's the first half of the sermon. The second half of the sermon, verses 17 through verse 26, Peter offers them hope. That's the attractiveness of the Gospel. This is how the apostles preached. Paul said that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God unto salvation. To those who perish, to those who are in their sin, to the lost man, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. And it's offensive. But to us who are the called, both Jew and Greek, it's the wisdom of God and the power of God. 
It is sweet to us. But it is sweet to us primarily because it is offensive. We have first been offended by the realization of our sin and our guilt and our culpability. Last week in verses 11 through 16, we looked at the power of God and uh, the power of Christ and the person of Christ. Those are the first two things that Peter focused in on. It's not by our own power, our own piety that we've made this man walk, Peter says, and he just points it right back to Christ. It's Christ who has healed this beggar in verses 1 through 10. It's Christ who has done this work. It's Christ who gave him the ability to work. Not ourselves. Then Peter focuses in on the person of Christ. In the latter part, he does that by using all of those divine titles. Servant, Jesus, Prince of Life, and Holy and Righteous One. Indicating who that person is who gave this man the ability to walk. And now in the rest of this message, we're looking at part 2 this morning, verses 17-26. through Peter focuses in on two more things. First, the promise of Christ, and then second, the prophecies concerning Christ. Let's look first of all at the promises of Christ, or the promise of Christ. And now Peter says, Brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, He's thus fulfilled. Now at first glance, that looks like Peter's giving him a pass, isn't it? Look at verse 17. I know you acted in ignorance. That sound like an excuse? I realize you didn't know what it was that you were doing. Does it sound like Peter's giving him a pass? You know, really he's not because down in verse 19 he says, repent and return. You don't call somebody to repentance if you give them an excuse for their sin. It's true that many of those who heard Peter's word acted in ignorance. Not all of them. Most of them did. There were some of the key religious leaders of the day and some in that crowd undoubtedly who knew exactly what they were doing when they orchestrated the death of Christ. Some of the religious leaders knew exactly who he claimed to be. They saw the signs that he did. They didn't act in ignorance. It was willful sin. Now Peter's speaking in the temple to many people probably who just were part of the mob who shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He says to them, you acted in ignorance. Many of them really did not fully understand what it was that they were doing. Possibly carried along with the mob mentality. Have you ever done something just because the crowd's doing it? Because everybody else is doing it, so you take up in it and maybe don't even think through all of the ramifications of what you're doing. That's this crowd. Carried along by the mob, some of the people even involved in the trial of Christ were put up to doing what they did. They acted, for the most part, in ignorance. They, If they really understood completely what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. If they had really understood fully what it was that they did, these people undoubtedly may not have had a had a hand in what it was that they were doing. Peter says, you, you acted in ignorance. Not everybody acted in ignorance. Some of them acted knowingly. Knowingly, they put Christ to death and they didn't fully understand it. Listen, they had received enough illumination to know that they shouldn't have done what they did. They received a lot, enough understanding that they can be held guilty. Because doing a sin in ignorance is still a sin, is it not? If you perform a sin or you commit a sin, even though you don't understand what you're doing, you're still sinning. In our day, today, in our judicial system, we have this thing called innocent by reason of insanity. Yeah, innocent by reason of insanity. Drives me nuts to hear that. How in the world can somebody be innocent by reason of insanity? That's an admission of guilt. We know they did it, but we're going to pretend like they didn't do it because they were crazy when they did it. 
It really does not matter what the mental state of the individual was when they committed the crime. They committed the crime. So you say an individual's innocent by reason of insanity is to say they're guilty. And they're still a guilty person, but we're going to treat them as if they're innocent because they were nuts or crazy or insane when they did it. That's insane to do that. You can't, nobody will ever be able to stand before God and said, I didn't understand what it was I was doing. Nobody will ever be able to stand in the presence of God and say, you know what? I didn't realize I was doing what I was doing. That'll never be an excuse. No matter what level of understanding any human being is at, if we stand before God and we're judged for our sin, we'll be judged because we sinned against the light that we had. These people who did this did it in ignorance, not fully understanding everything that they were doing, but they understood enough that they suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness and they sinned against the light and the understanding that God gave to them. That's why Peter says repent. Now they may not have fully understood what they were doing, but there's one person there who did understand all of it. Who was that? Verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, He's thus fulfilled. God knew exactly what was going on. He had predicted it. He had prophesied it. He had revealed it all through the Old Testament prophets. and That's where Peter's going to turn his focus here in a minute. God had revealed all of the details of the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the minutest detail through all of the Old Testament prophets. Everything concerning His Son and concerning salvation was determined before time began. God orchestrated salvation, planned salvation, decreed that it should happen, and He predicted through the prophets exactly what was going to happen. That He would be born in Bethlehem, he predicted the tribe that he would be born of, the circumstances surrounding his birth, predicted all the details of his death, the casting of the lots for his garments, being pierced, the thirsting, the hanging on the cross, the dislocation of all of his joints, his friend's betrayal, even for 30 pieces of silver, even the method of his entrance into Jerusalem one week before he was crucified. All of the minutest details of his life and his ministry and his death foretold with breathtaking accuracy. How is that possible? Because God knew exactly what was going to happen, the minutest detail, because He planned and He orchestrated the whole thing from eternity past. And He foretold it through His prophets. That's why the Christ had to suffer. There was no other way. If they had all known exactly what it was that they were doing, would Christ still have been crucified? I mean, it's impossible to even consider that as a possibility. Why? He had to suffer. That's the way it was. God decreed it. He planned it. He purposed it. He knew it would happen. The whole working out of our salvation planned from eternity past. But I want you to notice how Peter unfolds a theme here that he did in Acts chapter 2 as well. And the theme is this. The sovereignty of God in our salvation and the responsibility of man for what happened. You notice that? That's why Peter could say, God planned it. And He purposed it. And He foretold it through the prophets. He knew ahead of time everything that was going to happen, but he says, you bear the responsibility for crucifying and putting to death the Prince of Life. Now, how do you reconcile those two things? You don't, because they're both true, and you don't need to reconcile truth. Truth is true, whether you think it fits all of truth or not, but those two things are true. Peter developed that back in Acts chapter 2. He predestined it to occur, but... They bear the responsibility for executing the Son of God. Now, if you're listening, they're listening to that audience at that time. 
and you're amongst those people and you're listening to Peter, how do you feel? Man, about this tall, right? You could walk out underneath the door of the temple, underneath the gate. You've been humbled. You've been offended. You've been told that you violated the law of God, that you crucified the Son of God, that you crucified the Prince of Life and put Him to death. You've rejected your Messiah. You've rejected the kingdom. You've rejected all the blessings that God intended for you. So is there any hope? That's all terribly offensive to the unregenerate man. Is there hope? Sure there is. Verse 19, look what Peter says. Repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Repentance is a key theme in the book of Acts. We saw it back in chapter 2. If you were here when we went through chapter 2, you'll remember what repentance is and what repentance is not. Repentance is not just confessing your sin. Repentance is not acknowledging that you're a sinner. Repentance is not even ceasing from sin. Repentance is not giving up sin. Because all of those things can be done without a repentant heart. You may exchange sin, but never change the heart. You may move from one sin to another. You may even give up sin. You may even resolve to not sin. And you may even confess certain sins, but in your heart be unrepentant. Because repentance is a changing of the heart and the mind concerning my sin. Repentance is an individual who loves sin turning and being an individual who hates sin. And he hates sin not because sin is painful, not because sin carries negative consequences. Repentance is hating sin because it's sinful, not because it's painful. Repentance is hating sin because God is holy. And sin is an affront to a holy God. And Peter says you must repent. And not only repent, but return. There are two sides to repentance. Repentance is a turning away from something. It means to have a change of mind, a change of thinking, and it's a turning away from one thing. Returning is turning to something else. You might think of it in terms of repentance being a turning away, faith being a turning to. No man can be saved without repentance. That's a fact. You, you have to repent in order to be saved. You can't be saved from your sin if you won't give it up. You cannot be saved from the consequences of your sin and be delivered from your sin while you passionately traffic in it. No man can be saved unless he will do two things. Turn from his sin and turn to God in faith. That's repentance and returning. You must turn from sin to God. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he said to the Thessalonians, you have turned from idols to serve a living and true God. That's two sides of the same coin. You've turned from one thing and you have turned to something else. That is genuine repentance. How do you know if an individual has been saved? Have they repented? Or do they make a profession with their mouth and then continue living a lifestyle of debauchery and sin? The lifestyle will indicate where their heart is. The lifestyle will indicate what the nature is inside. You must repent. And Peter's demanding you need to turn from your sin. And you must return to God. You have to turn from sin to God. And what's going to happen if they do that? Two things Peter highlights. First, that your sins may be wiped away. You see that in verse 19? Repent and return that your sins may be wiped away. He uses kind of an interesting word. Back in those days, ink did not have acid in it like it does today. And so a man may write on a parchment, write something out on a parchment, and because the ink did not have any kind of acidic quality to it, it wouldn't burn itself or indel itself into the parchment. And so you might take a, white cloth, a wet cloth and just wipe the parchment clean. Even after the ink had dried, you could still wipe the parchment clean. That's the word that Peter uses. 
the word that you would use to describe a person who takes a wet rag and wipes out the ledger that's written against them, so to speak. That's the results of forgiveness. That is the results of repentance. A man is saved, a man's sins are washed away when he repents. Not when he just simply says a prayer and checks the box and says, oh, I'm part of the family of God now. No, without repentance, without repentance, there's no wiping away of sin. The Prince of Life did on the cross what bulls and goats could never do. Wiped away our sin. The ledger would have always been there against us. That parchment with all of my deeds, all of my crimes, all of my violations of God's will, His law, and His character, all of that would have been there for all of eternity if the Prince of Life had Himself not shed His blood to wipe all of that away for me. That's the idea. And I would still be in my sin because the parchment with my name at the top would still have all of my crimes written on it. Peter says if you repent and if you return, your sins will be wiped away. They'll be taken care of. That's one of the blessings of the Gospel. Yeah, you offend people when you present them the Gospel. You offend them and say you've sinned. But the attractiveness is there's an atonement for sin. There is a provision for sin. There's somebody who came and gave his life for sin. That's the attractiveness of the Gospel. There's a second thing that Peter indicates would happen in verse 19. He says that in order that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. What's the times of refreshing? Is that summer? Is it a cold drink on a hot day? What's the times of refreshing? It's really a prophetic reference or kind of a prophetic uh, language that Peter uses. And it refers to something that all of the Old Testament prophets have foretold for the nation of Israel. And guess what it is? The kingdom. There is a kingdom coming. And Peter says, if you, speaking to Jews, if you will repent and return, your sins will be wiped away and the times of refreshing will come. Now, is that present or is that future still? Or is it past? It is both present and it is future. There is still a times of refreshing that we look forward to that is yet future for us when the full blessings of the kingdom with Christ here on earth will be all of ours, but there's also present times of refreshing. All of the blessings that you and I have as being members of the body of Christ, all of the blessings that you and I have for being in the church, our fellowship with one another, the Word, everything that comes to us now is only a precursor to what is yet to come. It's only a small taste of that time of blessing, the times of refreshing, that is yet future for us. And Peter seems like he's offering to them the kingdom, does it not? If you repent, God will bring the kingdom. And they rejected it. Now from human perspective, the kingdom has been delayed at least close to 2,000 years. We don't know when that's going to come. That's yet future to us. But because of their rejection, because they rejected their king, they can't have a kingdom. They rejected the king, they rejected their kingdom, and rejecting the kingdom, they rejected all of the blessings that came with that kingdom. And Peter is saying, if the nation will repent, the times of refreshing will come. And we know from Paul, Romans chapter 11, that prior to the coming of the kingdom, the whole nation of Israel will repent. They will look on Him whom they pierced. They will mourn as one mourns for His only Son. There will be a national turning to Christ prior to the installation of the kingdom when the nation as a nation receives Him. But that's not right now. That awaits yet a future period of time when they see the Messiah and they turn. God in His timetable has delayed that and as Paul says in Romans 11, He's not cast off His people whom He foreknew. But there has been a temporary hardening now in order that you and I might be brought in. And we're being brought in during this period of grace. 
And they didn't repent. Some of them trusted Christ this day in Acts chapter 3, but not the nation. The nation as a whole kept turning their back and kept rejecting the Messiah. And until they repent, the kingdom will not and cannot come. That's what the times of refreshing is. Now look what Paul says in chapter, or Peter says in verse 20. And that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed to you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Peter says the prophets foretold of a time in which there would be a restoration of all things. And until that period of time, heaven must receive Christ. So Christ is there. He has ascended. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father, and He will remain there until the period comes when there is this restoration of all things that God foretold by the prophets. There's an interval, a delay. And Peter's indicating that. He's offering them to them the blessings. Come in and receive the blessings that are inherited to us by Abraham. Receive all the blessings that God wants to pour out on you. But they rejected it. And Peter's saying, heaven will receive Him and keep Him. He'll be there until that period comes. Till the timing is perfect, sometime in the future, and Christ will come back and all the blessings with Him. And then we'll realize fully that those things which only we taste is a precursor of now. That's the promise of the Gospel. That's the promise of Christ. And I want you to look at the prophecies of Christ, beginning in verse 21. The last part of the verse, God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. And then in verses 22-26, through Peter names three Old Testament characters. I want you to notice them. Verse 22, Moses. Verse 26, or 24, pardon me, is Samuel. And the third one is verse 25, Abraham. Moses, Samuel, and Abraham. He names three Old Testament characters because Peter's point is to point these Jews back to their Old Testament scriptures. He's speaking to Jews in the temple. And the question that might be going through their mind is, Why is it that we should understand Christ the way you understand Christ? Why is it that we should trust Christ the way you trust Him? Why is it that we should worship Him the way you do? Peter's going to say because all of your Old Testament, all of the Scriptures that you have bear witness to Him. He begins with Moses and he quotes Deuteronomy 18. Look what he says in verse 21, 22. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, and to him you shall give heed to everything He says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. It's a rough quotation of Deuteronomy 18 when Moses, at the end of his life, said God will raise up in the future a prophet. And even prior to Peter, the people looked at that prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 and they expected the Messiah to be the one who would fulfill the role of the prophet. They were looking for somebody who would be their king, their mediator, and their priest, all in one person. The prophet. Do you remember when John the Baptist arrived on the scene and he began to baptize people and announce the coming of the Messiah? The people asked him, are you the prophet? And what did he say? No, I'm not. But that's what they were expecting. Are you the one that Moses foretold? Peter's saying the one that Moses foretold is Jesus. Moses was really the first uh, prophet as, a, as the office of prophet goes, there were people who predicted things before Moses, but serving as a prophet, Moses is really considered the first and, and one of the greatest prophets. And he said, there's coming a time when God's going to raise up a man like me who will be their mediator, their king, and their priest, all in one person, who will stand between them and God and mediate between them. And Moses looked forward to that, and Peter says, he's come, and you rejected him. God raised him up. 
And then he quotes from Leviticus, verse 23, and it will be that every soul that does not heed, that is, obey that prophet, shall be utterly destroyed. You see what Peter's demanding of these people? Is he just asking them to say, okay, we were wrong about Jesus, so we're sorry. Is that all he's asking of them? Or is he asking far more? Everyone that does not obey that prophet shall be utterly destroyed. Obedience is part of the gospel. You don't preach a gospel that's free of demands. Peter's demanding obedience. He's asking them not only to recognize that they were wrong in their assessment about who Christ is, but to go further than that. To turn from their sin, to trust in Christ, and to place their faith in Him, but also to obey Him. Because no man will be saved if he rejects and disobeys the gospel. And the gospel is a gospel of obedience. If you present a gospel to somebody that has obedience to Christ as ancillary or optional, you've presented a gospel that cannot save. Because that's not the saving gospel. The saving gospel is that you repent, you trust in Christ, and you will obey Him. And how do you know if a man has been saved or not? Does he obey Christ? John said in 1 John, By this we know the children of God and the children of the devil. They're manifest. They're evident. It's plain to see. The children of the devil, disobedience. That's what marks their life. The children of God, obedience. Everybody that does not obey, that man shall be utterly destroyed. The one who will not obey Christ is the one who has never repented, trusted in Christ, turned from his sin, and believed on him for salvation. Obedience marks the life of a believer. Disobedience marks the life of an unbeliever. That's what Peter's saying. He's asking them, I want you to repent. I want you to turn. And you must obey. Because Moses said, if you don't obey him, you'll utterly perish. Second person he makes reference to there is Samuel. Verse 24. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. The interesting thing about this is that we have no record ever of Samuel ever predicting anything of Christ. No... No vocal pronouncement, nothing in writing from the prophet Samuel about Christ at all. So everybody wonders, well, what did Samuel ever say about Christ? What did Samuel ever predict about Christ? Now really, Samuel was the one who anointed David, and all the promises of the kingdom were given to David, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. So Samuel had a role in that way, but that's really not what Peter is is highlighting here. Samuel's considered the father of the prophets. He set up schools for the prophets. He had an itinerant ministry where he ministered in different towns and he trained other prophets. And it was really through Samuel that the whole prophetic office was instituted in the Old Testament. And all of his successors include Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Malachi and Nathan and Elisha and Elijah. And all of those Old Testament prophets are really considered the successors of Samuel. And so what Peter is doing by highlighting Samuel is he's referring to all the Old Testament prophetic records. It's not just what Samuel wrote, it's what Samuel and the whole prophetic Old Testament revelation was about. It all pointed to Christ. Now in highlighting Moses, in speaking of Moses, Peter really indicates the law. All of the law that came through Moses, the great lawgiver, it all pointed to Christ. By mentioning Samuel, Peter is referencing what? The prophets. You have the law and you have the prophets. And Peter's point is, all of it points to Christ. 
And to reject him is to reject Moses. To reject him is to reject Samuel and all of his successors. To reject Christ is to reject all of the revelation of God concerning who he is and what he's going to do. If you stand against Christ and you reject him, you reject all of the teaching of the Old Testament. You reject the lawgiver, you reject the prophets, you've rejected all of revelation, and it is to sin against the vast enormity of all that the Old Testament spoke of. That kind of puts him in a box, doesn't he? You reject him, look what you're rejecting. Moses, Samuel, and all of Samuel's successors. All of the law, all of the prophets point to Christ. And they should obey him. They should obey Christ. That's what Peter's driving at. You really have no excuse not to obey him. Why is that? Look at verse 25. You're sons of the prophets and of the covenant. Now, by sons of the prophets, does he mean that they're literal descendants of the prophets? No. By sons of the prophets, he means they're heirs of all that the prophets foretold. They're, they're the ones really who are the beneficiaries of everything that the prophets predicted. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, when he wrote his epistle, he said all the Old Testament prophets looked and studied intently to see what it was that the Spirit of God was indicating when he was in the Old Testament prophets, predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories that were to follow. And here Peter is just simply saying, if you reject Christ, you reject all of the Old Testament prophetic record, you should accept all of that. You should turn to Christ and trust Christ because you're sons of the prophets. You're the recipients of all the blessings that they predicted. And not only are you sons of the prophets, you're sons of the covenant. You're the covenant people. You are the recipients of all of the covenant blessings. And if you reject Christ, you reject all of that. All of the blessings that the prophets promised. And all of the blessings that are promised in the covenant. To reject that, you alienate yourself from all of those things. You're sons of the prophets. Now, because of their rejection, does that mean that God no longer has a plan for His people? Romans 11. Paul spends a whole chapter talking about that. Absolutely not. The hardening is temporary. God won't cast off His people whom He foreknew because the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. There's coming a time. But now you and I as Gentiles have been grafted into this tree. We've been given the blessings now that are available to us because Israel rejected it. They rejected their king. Now we get the blessings of it. And it all comes to us. But not all of it, all of it. Eventually God is going to deal again with His nation. And you and I, when that happens, oh man, the blessings will just pour out upon us because we're in the church. And we'll get it even more so. Look what Peter says in verse 26. For you first God raised up His servant and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. For you first, to the Jew first, because it came to them first. The Gospel came to the Jews first. For you first God raised up His servant, Jesus, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Now I want you to notice two things in verse 26. The first is this. Notice that Peter calls them wicked. Now how offensive is that? You're wicked. Now that might not be so stunning to us or startling to us if Peter were speaking in a bar or if he were preaching in a brothel. It might not be so staggering to us if Peter were in a pagan idolatrous temple and he were telling the people this. But he says to them, you're wicked. And where is he at? In the temple. In the heart of Judaism. Right where they have come to sacrifice for sin. These people have prepared themselves. They have brought their offerings. They have come to the house of worship. They have come there not to sin, but to sacrifice for their sin. And Peter says, you're wicked. God has raised up Jesus to turn you from your wicked ways. Now, if you're one of those Jews standing there, you'd say, wicked? 
How dare you call me wicked? I've come to the house of God today to sacrifice and to worship Him, to give, to honor Him, to prayer, and you call me wicked. Yeah? It just goes to show you, you can be right in the heart of God's people. You can come to the house of God to worship, to sacrifice, to give, to sing, to prayer, and to hear the Word of God preached, and still be an individual who has never turned from their sins and trusted in Christ. And you can stay that way for years. Peter wants them to know, all of the external religious trappings that you think earns you righteousness before God earns you nothing because you're still at enmity with God. doesn't matter how many sacrifices you give. doesn't matter how much money you give. doesn't matter what external things you try and do to please Him. You're wicked. Second thing I want you to notice is that repentance is a blessing of Christ. He raised up Jesus to bless you by turning every one of you to your wicked ways. Repentance is a blessing of Christ. Are we commanded to repent? Sure we are. Chapter 2, verse 38. Chapter 4, verse 19. We are commanded to repent. Does God expect us to repent? Yes, He does. Will He judge us if we don't repent? Yes. What is it that keeps us away from the blessings of God? Our lack of repentance. Not our lack of knowledge. Our lack of repentance. It's a spiritual issue. So He has commanded us to repent. He will judge us if we do not repent. But here's what you have to understand. Repentance itself is a gift of God. He raised up Jesus to bless you by turning you from your wicked ways. It's His work. He does it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Paul says, Repentance is a gift from God. That God may grant them repentance. Acts chapter 11, verse 18, God granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. So an individual who's repented really cannot even take credit for that. That's incredibly frustrating, isn't it? Man who wants to take some credit for his salvation is reminded over and over again that he can't. Listen, you and I, left to ourselves, would never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, ever repent. Not one of us. We can't. We lack the ability in an unregenerate state. We lack the will in an unregenerate state. We are bound by our sin and we cannot shed our sin for anything. We love our sin. We traffic in our sin. We enjoy our sin. And an unregenerate man will part with his life before he parts with a lust. He will gladly leave his family, his wife, his children, his job, allow his reputation be destroyed, and even give up his health before he gives up his sin. That's unregenerate man. If left to ourselves, we would never repent. That's why Peter says, the blessing of Christ is that He turns you from your wicked ways. So you can never pound your chest and say, oh, I'm better than the next guy. I believed. I trusted in Christ. No, Ephesians 2.10 says your faith was a gift so that you cannot boast. Uh, I believed. That was my doing. No, Philippians chapter 2, it's been granted to you to believe and to suffer for His name. That was a gift. Oh, but I'm better than the next guy. I repented. I turned from my sin and turned to God. No. Acts 2 Timothy 2.25 Repentance is a gift. So you can't boast about anything. Isn't that frustrating? Man, unregenerate man just wants something that he can hold on to and say, I can at least claim this. And the Gospel strips us of that. It says you must repent. You must return. 
But you have to understand that your repentance is a blessing of Christ. If you're sitting here this morning, you're in one of two camps. Either you're just like these people in Acts chapter 3 who stood in the house of God and they heard the message of the gospel presented and they rejected it. They didn't have the blessings. They thought they did. They didn't have a relationship with Christ. They thought they did. They were really had rejected Him, turned their back on Him, had never repented of their sins, never trusted in a Savior, never done any of that. They're not obedient. They thought that they were pleasing God with their own acts of self-righteousness. We're coming to the temple like we do every day. We offer our sacrifices. We pray. We worship. We do our thing. And we go on with our lives. Never knowing that they were enemies of God and that their wickedness stood between them and God. And if that's you, then verse 19 is where you need to focus. Repent and return. Because it is your lack of repentance that keeps you from enjoying the blessings of God. And you might be in the second camp. The second camp is where probably most of us are at. And that is, we're on the other side of salvation and we have the blessings. We know what it is to believe in Christ, to have Christ, to have Him at the center of our life, to have everything that He gives to us, to be adopted into His family, the indwelling of the Spirit, the Word of God, and all the blessings that come with that. They're ours. We enjoy them. We partake of them. We have experienced those times of refreshing and we long for that day when we'll be fulfilled and be ultimately refreshed. And we look forward to all of that. And what is our response? We have to look at that and say, none of that has anything to do with me. He didn't do that for me because I was special. He didn't do that for me because I was better than the next guy. And I really had nothing to do with any of that. My faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. My belief in Him is a gift. All of salvation is a gift. And all you and I can do is bow our heads and worship and adore and praise Him and thank Him for all that He's done for us in Christ. All of it as a gift. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. Father, beyond any ability to express in our hearts and in our minds is the desire to thank You and thank You and thank You again for all that You've given to us in Christ. If we had a thousand tongues to sing, we could not exhaust the, the riches of the praise that You deserve for all that You've given to us in Christ. We thank You that we could do nothing good. We thank You that we were lost and that we could not earn our salvation. And most importantly, we thank You that it was Christ who did all of that for us. Thank You for sending Your Son. Thank You for giving us salvation. Thank You for the gift of repentance. Thank You for the gift of faith. Thank You for the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And we have You to worship and praise and adore forever and ever and ever because of all that You've given to us. And the riches of His grace and for the riches of His grace, we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.